So over the past several days, we've been intentionally cultivating a very direct and intimate experience of the six sense doors of thoughts and taste and touch and sights and sounds and of our feelings, sensations. And as we've been doing that, and as our practice deepens, we start to see that not only are we experiencing a deeper stillness and a deeper peace, but we also touch deeper obstacles and deeper woundings. And we come to see for ourselves that all these created phenomena that arise from our contact with the six sense doors have three basic characteristics that the Buddha taught about. And those are that there's suffering and that things are constantly changing. Or anicca, things are not permanent. And that there's no separate sense of self or anatta. And this is what he said. All formations are transient. All formations are subject to suffering. All things are without a self. Therefore, whatever there be of form, feeling, perception, mental formation of consciousness, whether past or present or future, one's own or external, gross or subtle, far or near, one should understand according to reality and true wisdom. This does not belong to me. This I am not, and this is not myself. So much of our suffering comes from a misunderstanding and a confusion about impermanence and about selflessness. And yet it's through having the courage to really look deeply into our suffering, to begin to understand its nature, that we come to insight of the second two. Suffering is all around us. You've been looking at so many levels of that all week. Unwittingly, our society is very good at causing and perpetuating suffering. As Buddha Dasa said, it's as if a dukkha-making machine has appeared in the world. And in fact, Arthur Kirstler, after the First World War, concluded, if one looks with a cold eye at the mess man has made of his history, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that he has been afflicted with some built-in mental disorder, which drives him towards self-destruction. So it's sad, but there it is. However, um, the Buddha taught that there's a way out of this. And as Buddha Dasa said, all we need is the cure of one handful of dharma. Sometimes it's hard to believe we can face our own pain, never mind the world's pain. It's so easy to go numb or into panic when we've been so conditioned to deny and to avoid experiencing pain. Our culture doesn't want children to feel or experience emotional or physical pain. I notice in my practice as a physician that when um, mothers bring their children in for shots, 
So many mothers, when the child gets the shot, the moment the baby opens its mouth to cry, a breast is stuck in there or a bottle. It's a really clear message. Don't cry, eat. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> can you imagine? You're, you're about to have a feeling and all this milk is pouring down your throat. <laughs> it doesn't make it very easy to be able to cry later in life. There are some mothers, however, who hold the baby and just with real love and compassion, I'm sorry it hurts, you know, and rock back and forth and allow the baby to be mad or hurt or whatever it is. But it's really a condition in our society not to give any skills in how to tolerate discomfort or to acknowledge that discomfort will pass. That sharp burning sensation is intense and it passes. Um, in the early years of my practice, I didn't have very good boundaries and um, it was very difficult for me to experience other people's pain. There was a lot of fear involved in it. And I'm embarrassed to say that the first time I had to insert an IUD, one of those intrauterine devices, I got cramps. <laughs> and so I thought, this is really bad. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. Unfortunately for me, I met Stephen Levine. And through working with, um, through working with him, I learned to explore the edges of pain to begin to able to allow it, to notice when there was a contraction around it, and to begin to go into it and find a spaciousness in that. To find that if this moment is bearable, then it's possible the next one will be. And all of you here have had a shot, and you know that if your muscles all contracted and tight, it hurts more. If your muscles relaxed, it doesn't hurt as much. Well, the same is true of any kind of pain. When we're like this, it's more intense. And so gradually through our practice, we learn to soften a little, to open a little, to give it compassion, rather than resistance. And we also begin to discern and see and tease out the distinction between avoidable pain and the unavoidable pain that we add on. And as we sit and our mindfulness deepens, we're able to see more and allow more suffering. Our ability to begin to allow it deepens. And then we can begin to allow the depth of the grief and the anger at the incredible pain that there is in the world. Ajahn Sumedho said, be glad when unpleasant states keep coming up in our practice. By having loving kindness for the wretched creatures that we lock away inside us, we're opening the door of the prison. We're letting them out, and we release them out of compassion rather than a desire to get rid of them. And that's so important because it frees the energy. There's so much energy tied up in holding it inside and in denying and resisting. And when that energy is freed, painful though it may be, there's energy that's available for joy, for love, and for creative um, activities and power. Margaret Atwood said, to see the world clearly is to see through tears. 
And that's important because we're not trying to transcend our grief, our anger, and our suffering in order to attain some tranquil state. What we want is to be able to fully be in the world just as it is. Shantideva said, let all sorrows ripen in me. Our pain and our suffering serve as a transformation, and we can use our pain as a cause to wake up. One of the greatest causes of our suffering is our resistance to change. We know everything changes, yet we want to believe that things are solid and unchanging. We want to believe that the rainforests will last for forever, that the Earth's resources will last forever, that the lakes aren't being poisoned and the species aren't dying out. We want to believe it's all permanent. It's changing. And we want to believe that we control things, that we can control things. Many years ago, about 20 years ago, I guess, I was in Nicaragua Um, working with a medical team, and we were helping set up clinics with the Sandinistas. And it was a very exciting and wonderful time um, in creative building. And a couple of years later, I went back um, to bring more supplies, and it was at the time when the U.S. was invading Grenada. And it became an emergency situation, and we had to leave. And as we were leaving... um, some of the women that we'd been working with, this was a Canadian and American team, came to us, and they were in tears and desperate. Please don't send your sons to kill our sons. And that was really unbearable to me. And when I came back, there was a way that that was so hard to allow that there was nothing I could do to stop that to stop the support of the Contras, to stop the clinics that we'd built being bombed and destroyed, some of the people dying. There was nothing I could do in that moment. And I realized also that I was really holding on tightly to being able to make a difference, and that I had an agenda to it working out. And that isn't how it is in life. It doesn't always work out. And as the Buddha said, if we hold on to what inevitably changes, it's like holding on to a revolving wheel. At some point in the cycle, we're going to get run over. And things change because causes and conditions change. Every time we look and touch and listen and feel, the object of our perception can reveal this impermanence. Contact at each of those six sense doors is always changing. Each word I say is gone. The taste of the meal you had at tea is gone. The thoughts you had at the last sitting, gone. It seems obvious, and yet we resist it. We feel betrayed when our bodies change. We fight growing old. We want the pleasant to stay and our bodies not to deteriorate, and our loved ones not to die. I had a patient who had terminal cancer, 
and she was very ill for a while, and it was thought that she would die very soon. But she rallied, and she didn't. And she was out walking in the street one day, and she met a friend. And the friend said to her, Oh, how wonderful to see you. You must be so relieved that you're not going to die. And she said to her friend, Well, of course I'm going to die. <laughs> and she realized that on some level she had got it, but her friend hadn't. <laughs> um, and I remember when both my parents died, it was actually kind of revelation. Oh, everybody's parents die. You know, somehow there's this vague kind of thing, but <laughs> this isn't going to happen to me. But it happens to all of us. And it's, it's this insight into impermanence is going through every thread in our lives. And it can teach us to respect and really appreciate every moment, to love and to live fully. The Buddha taught that to end this form of suffering was to cease clinging, to cease clinging to anything. But you know from your practice that that's not so easy. It isn't easy to let go. The conditioning to hold on is really strong. But we, we're encouraged to let go of everything. It's an invitation to cease clinging to things being a certain way, to being able to fix it, to being good enough, to getting it right, to any concept that might arise during our meditation, that our body won't change. So this letting go is a releasing of all this with the kind of acceptance that Tara was talking about last night. It's a creative act. Very often, I've seen that when people are terminally ill or in crisis or have lost a loved one, they're able to let go. They're able to acknowledge death and to be in this place of loving and living more fully. But we don't have to be dying or in crisis to realize the truth of impermanence. But it does require a tremendous letting go. You can't make letting go happen, just like you can't force falling asleep. You can't even force dying. When my mother was terminally ill um, of cancer, Everyone had come to see her. It was around Christmas and Hanukkah. And she decided that she was ready to die. And so she had her last goodbyes, and she went to sleep. And I was sitting with her, and halfway through the night, she sort of turned to me and opened one eye. I didn't die. <laughs> and she was really mad. <laughs> um, and I sort of explained to her, well, you know, Mom, it's like a process. It's like having a baby. You can't determine the date the date or how long the labor will be. <laughs> and dying is like that. The body lets go gradually. Each system shuts down gradually, for some people. For others, it's like that. And she got it, and she was able to move really beautifully through that process. The Buddha had people reflect on impermanence and death. And there were grave meditations, and people would go to the cemetery. We're not asking you to do that. But, but we can sit and simply, with each walking and each sitting, use them as a laboratory to look at the little deaths, 
the little deaths of our expectations, our agendas, our hopes, our fears. It helps to understand that letting go isn't a doing. It's more a letting be. Wendy Lewis says, it's like this. There's this bird and you catch it in your hands. You feel its softness, its warmth, its heart rapidly beating. But if you keep holding it, it's no longer a bird. So you open your hands, you catch it, and you let it go again and again. So it's like letting the palm open to release something, for it to arrive and be released over and over. Everything comes and goes by itself. It's a relinquishing of the struggle of resistance, allowing things to be as they are. But it's difficult for us to let things be as they are. Sometimes I hate the fact that things are the way they are. There's resistance. Our culture has so much value on fixing and progressing and doing. But can we just be still in the present moment, simply sitting, walking, eating, breathing, being with what is, mindful of each moment, recognizing what arises, seeing what happens to it, aware of it dissolving over and over, feeling it fully, allowing it to dissolve, aware of the next thing. Each experience arises, dissolves, and we start to see that even the observing arises and dissolves. You can try it and be aware of the beginnings of the breath, the ends of the breath, the spaces between breaths, sometimes the spaces before a thought and then after a thought, being very careful and watching the arising and the dissolving as each thing changes moment after moment. It's the impermanence of life at every level, whether we're walking or sitting or eating. And we're allowing this unfolding of life whether it's unpleasant or pleasant or neutral. And when we see that things change, however they are, we begin to trust, we begin to understand more deeply. And then we don't have to grasp and hold on so tightly. It helps to practice with smaller, less charged issues. On a retreat I was teaching last summer, I was sitting up at the front and um, I began to have a very pleasant fantasy. It was very compelling. But after a few moments, I thought, well, this is not so cool. And I began to be mindful of wanting, wanting. And it dissolved, peaceful again. Then the fantasy began to appear again, and I saw this reaching towards it. This is such a nice fantasy. I would really like to go there. And the awareness of the wanting arising and getting bigger. And then, oh, a refraining are refraining from picking it up again. So can we do that? Not pick it up again. Sometimes we've picked it up before we've realized it, and it's like we're being dragged along by a leash. 
can we get low, let go of the leash? Oh, I'm holding on to being dragged along. Sometimes the mindfulness is really clear, and we can refrain from picking it up. Sometimes the mindfulness, just shining on being dragged by the leash, releases it. But sometimes that doesn't happen, and we're really caught, and we can't let go, and we can't refrain. And it feels frustrating, and it requires enormous patience, getting spacious around it, being okay with it not being okay. I'm lost. I'm stuck. (laughs) Ajahn Chah said that 70 to 80% of our practice is knowing we should be able to let go and not being able to. (laughs) So our practice teaches us to die to our attachments over and over, letting go again and again. And it's not something that we do when it's over. I let go, great. Two seconds later, attached again. (laughs) So it's an ongoing process all of our lives. We can simply have the intention to be present, to allow things to unfold all on their own. And by refraining from grabbing on and interrupting the flow, we get to release into the truth. Sometimes it helps to simply notice the action of holding on and letting go, to physically experience the contraction and the relaxing or the releasing. Putting attention on the process itself is what releases. When we put our attention on the thing that we want to let go of, sometimes that creates greater attachment. So just notice that. Once on a retreat, I'd gone on a walking meditation, and I was feeling very peaceful. And I came up to um, one of those chicken wire fences, And I put my hands in it like that, and I looked through. And all of a sudden, I was aware of the other side of the fence as bright and clear, crystal clear, as though everything in life was apparent. And then I had a sense that I was held in a prison by my own concepts, that the fence, the fence of my concepts, was what was keeping me separate from the truth. And then I looked at my hands and thought, oh, I'm holding on to the concepts. That's what the problem is. And as I said that, my hands just began to release all on their own. And there was a real sense of freedom that lasted for a few moments (laughs) until I became the great meditator who'd done that. (laughs) But, But it was the awareness of... It wasn't an conscious letting go. It was the mindfulness that was doing it all on its own, paying attention to the process. So it's bringing awareness to our stuckness and noticing where we're being held, where we're being drawn. Ajahn Chah says, being stuck is like pulling on the end of the rope. If one end is stuck, It won't budge. And to make it free, we need to find out where it's stuck. We need to seek out the source, the root of the problem. And we use our practice to discover how we're stuck, 
to discover the heart of peace. So it takes courage and trust to let it be, to allow all the parts of ourselves in our experience. And when we understand and accept that pain and pleasure and neutrality are all impermanent and constantly changing, then each moment can be complete. We are really are with life just as it is, and that whatever is happening can be okay, scary or peaceful or restless. Ordinary moments can become a deep blessing. This is a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Adios. It is a good word rolling off the tongue, no matter what language you were born with. Use it. Learn where it begins, the small alphabet of departure. How long it takes to think of it. Then say it. Then be heard. Marry it. More than any golden ring, it shines, it shines. Wear it on every finger till your hands dance, touching everything easily, letting everything easily go. Strap it to your back like wings or a kite tail, the stream of air behind a jet. If you are known for anything, let it be the way you rise out of sight when your work is finished. Think of things that linger, leaves, cartons, napkins, the smell of damp mold. Think of things that disappear. Think of what you love best, what brings tears into your eyes. Something that said adios to you before you knew what it meant or how long it was for. Explain little. The word explains itself. Later, perhaps, lessons following lessons, like silence following sound. One of the concepts that we hold on to most tightly is that our self is permanent and unchanging, that it kind of sits up here and is under our control. It's a single, separate thing, and it causes us a lot of problems. This is from Joanna Macy's, Macy, and it's called The Greening of the Self. The crisis that threatens our planet, whether seen from its military, ecological, or social aspect, derives from a dysfunctional and pathological notion of the self. It derives from a, a mistake about our place in the order of things. It's a delusion to think that the self is so separate and fragile that we must delineate and defend its boundaries, that it's so small and so needy that we must endlessly acquire and endlessly consume, that it is so aloof that as individuals, corporations, nation-states, or species, we are immune to what we do to other beings. 
And 2,500 years ago, the Buddha taught that nothing has a separate existence or a separate self. There's no entity that's separate from the flow of experience. Or as Thich Nhat Hanh says, everything has to interbe with everything else. And he tells the story of cookies. All the dough he imagines, so here's a batch of cookies, and that the moment each cookie leaves the bowl of dough and is placed into the tray, it sees itself as separate. But you, the creator of the cookies, know better and you have compassion for them. You know that they are originally all one and that even now the happiness of each cookie lies with the happiness of the other cookies. <laughs> However, they have developed vikalpa, or discriminating perception, and suddenly they set up barriers between themselves. And when you put them in the oven, they begin to talk to themselves. <laughs> Stop spreading over me. <laughs> Get out of my way. <laughs> I am large and brown and shiny and beautiful. You are small and lumpy and ugly. <laughs> I have more chips than you, and so on. Um, and we can tend to behave in this way. We have... <laughs> and, it <laughs> and it leads to a lot of suffering. But we do have the capacity to live with non-discriminating wisdom. But we have to train ourselves to see in that way and that everyone does belong to the same stream of life. Joanna Macy again. The way we define and delimit the self is arbitrary. We can place it between our ears and have it looking out from our eyes. Or we can widen it to include the air we breathe. Or at other moments we can cast its boundaries further to include the oxygen-giving trees, the plankton, our external lungs, and beyond them the web of life in which they are sustained. Thich Nhat Hanh says that what we most need to do in the world is to hear within ourselves the sounds of the earth crying and to open our hearts into that we open into our profound interconnection and from that place, caring comes, and compassion, and joy. But non-self isn't a doctrine or a philosophy. It's an insight that can help us live more deeply. The philosopher Vatsigota asked the Buddha, Is there a self? And the Buddha didn't answer. So he asked the Buddha a second time, is there a self? Buddha didn't answer. And he asked the Buddha a third time. Now normally the Buddha answered the third time, but this time the Buddha still didn't answer. So Vatsigota went off, probably in a snit. And so Ananda said, why didn't you answer him? You teach that there's no self. And the Buddha answered, he was looking for a theory not for a way to relieve suffering. So how can we understand anatta? 
it doesn't mean that we don't exist or that self is bad or that we have to get rid of self or make it empty of self. We are separate beings in significant ways. We have separate bodies, separate mind streams. I don't think Susan's thoughts. Fortunately for Tara, she doesn't have to think mine. If Jack gets enlightened tomorrow, it won't help me. That's his path unfolding. <laughs> I still have to do my work. Um, so we, th- there is that separation that we are individual beings. And yet, we're also deeply interconnected. The Hua Yen school of Buddhism teaches the jeweled net of Indra. This is the vast cosmic net where each jewel in, in the interconnection or intersection, um, in the intersections of the strands, every jewel has a tiny image of the universe and so reflects every other jewel in the entire net. And that the individuality and the interconnectedness are not contradictory. For me, it helps to think of it as the who-ness and the what-ness. The net image confirms the separateness as well as the interconnectedness. And we can begin to understand this more fully from our own direct experience. We don't have to get out of self and have an out-of-body experience. It's more an in-body, being with each moment, being with the changing flow of experience, whether it's a sensation or a feeling or a thought, whatever it is, arising and passing. And as our practice deepens, there are times that it's very quiet. And someone asked a question in the hall the other day about how scary that gets when that starts to quieten down and we begin to get a sense of that sense of self dissolving. Even though we may have read or known that we have to become nothing to become everything, the ego doesn't want to let go. It feels as though we'll die. This belief that we're separate and solid and unchanging is very conditioned. And it's supported by our society that brings us up to be something special, to become something, to achieve something, to put on all these masks that will be the right way to be. Buddha Dasa taught that the root cause of suffering is the delusion or wrong understanding that there's an I or a mine. He said it's the spiritual disease that requires the handful of dharma, this eyeing and mine. Every time there's a contact at one of the sense doors, there's a feeling of I or mine that can develop. I'm this. This is mine. Whatever we touch, taste, hear, smell, see, it's easy for mine and for I to arise. Other philosophers around the time of the Buddha also saw this, and they too wanted to get rid of this idea of I and mine. But when they eradicated those feelings, they called what was left the true self. But the Buddha refused this terminology because it was to refuse it was to avoid any new attachment 
to something belonging to the self. So this state that's free of I or mine can be known as voidness or emptiness or shunyata. It's empty of a separate, individual, independent self. And emptiness refers to this basic openness, this non-separation that we experience when all our fixed senses of small sense of self starts to be seen through and dissolves. There's a kind of vastness or knowingness that's immeasurable and very freeing. And it's the essence of all things. It's the character of the non-clinging mind. Wang Po said, voidness is by nature always present. Even when we're caught, it's just a turn of awareness away. That possibility of seeing through the contraction and the holding. Sometimes I found it really helps to just hold in awareness who is it that's experiencing these sensations? Who is it that's restless? What is it that's angry? And just to have that awareness. This belief in a small sense of self, this illusion, is again suffering. It takes us away from our freedom. We build all these constructs around it and concepts of what we should be. It's like from the moment we're born, all these layers are added on. Um, Once I was on a retreat, and we'd been doing a loving-kindness meditation, and I had not connected with it at all. Um, It was one of those places of complete resistance. But there was stillness, so after everyone had left the hall, I stayed there in this sort of state of aversion, and no, not one iota of loving-kindness. And all of a sudden, I had a very clear image of myself in my office, my medical practice. And I saw myself over my desk, you know, with all these piles of paper. And I began to peel off all these judgments from my face. It was like messiest desk, can't do this, no good at that. Judgment after judgment, just happening. And then all of a sudden, as the last one came off, I realized there's nobody there. All these years, <laughs> I've spent judging something that doesn't exist. <laughs> and it was a, an, a complete relief. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been trying to build up this thing that doesn't exist. You know? <laughs> sort of like puffing something up and then the bubble dissolving. It was so freeing. And again, it lasted for a moment before, <laughs> before positive labels began to be um, stuck on. But it was, it was a relief just to have that moment of freedom. And Buddha Dasa's cure or antidote the di- to this disease of eyeing and mying is that nothing whatsoever should be clung to, whether it's the positive idea or label or the negative one. They're just concepts. And if the mind is full of eyeing and mying, then wisdom can't enter. Mindfulness can't enter. But when mindfulness and compassion are present, then the eyeing and mying start to dissolve. 
but we're not trained in these ways of selflessness. As I said, from the moment we're born, it's my bowl, I'm this, you're that. And by the time we're adult, we become stuffed full of attachments. And when we live in the Western world, where the social and financial structure is based on us needing to buy, to become something, to acquire something, it kind of infers that we're inadequate the way we are. And so many of you resonated last night when Tara was talking about this sense of unworthiness that's so common, this need that we have that's fed by our social structure. Ajahn Sumedho says, America is the land of freedom. It promises the right to be happy, but really it offers the right to be attached, (laughs) to be attached to anything, to be as happy as we can by getting things, that we'll only be complete if we have this, have that. When I was on the plane flying over, I uh, picked up the in-flight magazine. And um, I can't resist sharing this with you. If you should come home tired and Fido is begging for a game of fetch, no problem. Just let Go Dog Go provide hours of fetching fun. (laughs) Exercise your pet as it launches up to 15 tennis balls (laughs) from from 15 to 30 feet. (laughs) And should you become overweight from never walking Fido, you can buy Dr. Metz's slimming insoles. (laughs) You can wear these for just four hours a day, and it eliminates excess fat reserves in the body. Through massaging the reflex zones of your feet. (laughs) And then I thought I would get for the retreat um, (laughs) this oxygen shot vapor. Um, You can buy oxygen shot vapor for quick recovery therapy that feeds and cools down all the cells in your body awakening your senses and giving you that energy boost you need during meditation and walking. (laughs) So so if you feel low or just plain tired, oxygen shot gets you up and going again. (laughs) And a 12-pack is 106 bucks. (laughs) So um, having indulged, indulged myself with that, Um, (laughs) So, um, to return, uh, (laughs) so on the Buddha's Night of Enlightenment, he saw very clearly that we don't exist as separate beings, and that he described us as a collection of five changing processes, body, feeling, perceptions, responses, and a flow of consciousness that experiences them all, the five skandhas, or the five aggregates, and that a self forms whenever we grasp at or identify with any of them. Whatever it is, whether it's the slimming insoles or the oxygen shot, 
where there's a contact with a form, a sound, an odor, a sensation, or any sense object, that conditions a feeling, a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that, in turn, conditions craving or aversion. And then there's clinging. And once there's that clinging, there's a becoming, there's suffering. And that's what keeps the wheel going around. For most of us, it isn't possible to stop the development of that feeling of unpleasant or pleasant. But if we can bring awareness to them, if we can bring awareness to as soon as we notice it's unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, then the craving and the aversion don't arise or are weakened. And we've stopped. We've stopped that wheel. We've stopped the development of eyeing and mine. However, even if craving and aversion do develop, and mostly they do, it isn't too late. <laughs> we can bring awareness just to the aversion. Oh, there's aversion going on here. Oh, there's wanting going on here. And the light of mind mindfulness can begin to dissolve them. And there's a loosening of that sense of self. The Buddha gave a beautiful teacher to Bahia. He said, Bahia, whenever you see a form, let there just be the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there be just the hearing. When there's an odor, just the smelling. When you taste a flavor, just the tasting. When a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomenon arising in the mind. When there's no self, there will be no running that way, no coming this way, no stopping anywhere. Self doesn't exist. That is the end of dukkha. That itself is nibbana. So when we don't identify and contract around, or when we notice that we've done that, and we have the intention to open and let it be, we see that things can arise, do what they do, leave and dissolve. When I gave my very first Dharma talk at Spirit Rock, I was sitting there and I began to feel a lot of fear. What if it's a bad Dharma talk? What if my Dharma talk is bad? And then I suddenly realized, oh, it's not my Dharma talk. Dharma talk. And then they begin to be a little bit looser, but still the fear, what if it's a bad Dharma talk? <laughs> and then there was, then I felt ashamed. Oh, I'm ashamed. And then it was, oh, my shame. And then the shame arose and it went. And I began to feel more peaceful. And then a sense of freedom. Oh, I'm free. And then I wear contraction. And then it's just freedom. Then I began to feel very good. Oh, maybe I'll give a good Dharma talk. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a sense of pride. <laughs> and, and so on. And each time there was a contraction, it, rele it released. I'm special if I give a good Dharma talk. Then the contraction released. Oh, just specialness arising and dissolving. And that's 
That's what happens. There's, there's no right way or wrong way. It's just the way it is. But when we make it mine, it becomes, we get caught in gain or loss or praise or blame or fame or disrepute. I've forgotten the fourth one. <laughs> um, so if we can be present with mindfulness, then it's just that. It's just shame, just hearing, just seeing. It's not adding or contracting around. It's just depression, not my depression. It's just anger, not my anger. And there's a freedom in that, and there's a spaciousness for each state to move free. And the sense of self and identification dissolves, and the wisdom and compassion naturally arise. And from this sense of no self comes the experience of not being, con- of, of interconnectedness. This is one final story, and it's told by um, Kosho Roshi in his book, Opening the Hand of Thought. Behind a temple, there was a field where there, many, there were many squashes growing on a vine. One day, a fight broke out among them, and the squashes broke up into two groups and made a big racket, fighting with one another and shouting. The head priest heard the uproar, and going out to see what was going on, found the squashes quarreling. In his booming voice, the priest scolded them. Hey, squashes, what are you doing out there, fighting? Everybody, meditate, meditate, right now. And the priest taught the squashes how to meditate. Fold your legs, sit up straight. And while the squashes were meditating in the way the priest had taught them, their anger subsided and they settled down. And then the priest said very quietly, Everybody, please put your hand on top of your head. And when the squashes felt the top of their heads, they found a weird string attached there. It turned out to be a vine that connected them all together. Hey, this is really strange, the squashes said. Here we've been arguing when actually we're all tied together and living just one life. What a mistake. It's just as the priest said. And after that, the squashes all got along with each other quite well. And he says, if a squash can do it, we can do it too. (laughs) So (laughs) the inner inner stillness that the squashes came to through sitting together allowed them to recognize their interconnection (laughs) and to let go of their personal agendas. (laughs) And when we think that we're separate and inadequate, It's easy to oppose each other. It's easy to get into mine and to, for oppression to arise and to have power over. And for that to happen in the world on a much larger scale, that need to defend what is mine. After 9-1-1, many people in North America were actually surprised at how much some of the two-thirds world as Joanna Macy terms it, hated the U.S. And some people fell into self-blame. And yet it's a societal conditioned thing. 
it's almost like in the Western world, there's this vast institutionalized greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not just a personal thing. It's this such strong conditioning. And so it helps to notice both the personal and the vastness. When we practice non-separation, when we cultivate and have the intention to directly experience life in this way and others as non-separate, there's a natural inclination to non-harming. We can connect with others' true nature, and we begin to connect with the true nature of each being, not with what we've done, and that seeing of another as evil begins to dissolve. Like the Dalai Lama in his approach to the Chinese does not see them as evil. And there's a possibility then for dialogue, for openness. So how do we embody these teachings? It takes time, little by little. There are so many levels of observing impermanence and of seeing how we get caught in identification, how it causes our own personal suffering, how it causes suffering in the world, and seeing more clearly the causes of suffering in our society. And it requires great gentleness and patience and persistence and courage to look inside at the patterns and the conditioning of the greed and hatred and delusion. If we don't look with gentleness and patience, we can perpetuate it and re-traumatize. And if we're striving and trying to get it right, there's a way that we're perpetuating more of that same power over, that we are, in turn, oppressing ourselves. And so when we have this attitude of compassion and patience, we can see the depth of our own ignorance and greed and delusion and aversion without judgment. We can see it as non-personal. We can see it as impermanent, as changing. And then we're able to open into that interconnectedness and to connect with that sense of power with ourselves, each other. And we can then have the courage to move out into the world, to take one step after another, not knowing what the outcome might be, but with the intention to see clearly and to act with wisdom and compassion. And so may we all move through our lives seeing clearly and with wisdom and compassion and freedom from identification. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.